America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Verisage Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. And today, Ed, we are so honored we have Dr. Jules Goddard on the line with us, and he is... Um, he earned his M.A. at Oxford. He's got an M.B.A. from Wharton and his Ph.D. from the London Business School. And he's currently research associate at the Management Lab at the London Business School. And he's also the author of one of the best books, business books, I think I read last year, uh, along with uh, Tony Eccles, entitled Uncommon Sense and Common Nonsense. It was actually published in uh, 2012. And he's married and he has four children, and he lives in London, London and, and Provence, which is interesting. Uh, Jules, welcome to the show, The Soul of Enterprise. Thank you, Ron. I'm absolutely delighted to be on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And, and there is so much to talk about. But uh, before we dive into your book, uh, why don't you just give a little bit of background on your, on your history? I know you've got a pretty varied history and work experience and that type of thing. Well, I came from an entrepreneurial family. Uh, my great-grandfather established four businesses in the, in the West Midlands uh, in England, uh, all of which exported uh, products to the United States. So I grew up very much in an entrepreneurial environment, and uh, my father suggested that I should do an MBA in the States in those days. That was in the 60s. It was quite unusual for a European, a young European uh, university graduate uh, to come to the States, whether it was to Harvard or the Wharton School or Stanford to do an MBA. But my father was convinced that if I was to go into business, uh, I needed to get a decent degree. And it was whilst I was at Wharton that I realized that what I really wanted to do with my life was to teach business rather than practice it. I did run a small business in France when I was young, but most of my life has been uh, teaching MBA students, uh, supervising PhD students and running workshops for for senior executives from all around the world. Excellent. And you've worked with quite a uh, number of different companies. I noticed, too, that you've also worked with some professional firms like Pricewaterhouse and, and uh, J. Walter Thompson and Deloitte and things like that. Uh, how do you find working with professional service firms these days? I think it's where the action is, if I'm absolutely honest. I started life working for... David Ogilvy at Ogilvy and Mather in New York City for several years and then came back uh, to this country, to England, uh, where I joined the London Business School as the first 
PhD student, and I guess I've always been interested in professional service firms, partly because, of course, universities themselves are rather like professional service firms, and the issues they face are essentially around the workplace, making a workplace that's very exciting uh, for capable, uh, well-educated, intelligent, creative people. And I've always thought that in manufacturing and industrial firms, they would be far, far more effective if they were designed as though they were professional service firms, which, if you like, base their entire culture on uh, trust and open relationships, rather less hierarchical, uh, rather less bureaucratic, uh, very empowered, rather decentralized, where teams, if you like, self-form and self-direct. And, and that's what I like about professional services firms, and that's why quite a lot of my work is with law firms and advertising agencies and management consultancies and so on. Oh, excellent. Okay. Well, we too, uh, Jules, work with a lot of professional firms. I'm a recovering CPA and, and Ed works and started my life in a big eight accounting firm. So you can figure out how old I am, but, uh, Ed, Ed works for Sage. Uh, and, and we work with a, a lot of advertising agencies and law firms and accounting firms, IT firms, consulting firms, same type of thing. Yeah. And, of course, we're trying to get them to get rid of the billable hour and their, their timesheet because we think these are the wrong things to measure. And, and maybe we can get in that with, into that with you because I noticed that in your book you, um, you kind of take on the accounting profession, which I really appreciated. <laughs> talked about some of the problems. But let, let's, let's dive into your book, Uncommon Sense common nonsense, why some organizations consistently outperform others. And I guess you wrote this uh, along with a guy named Tony Eccles. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Who's he, just by way of introduction? He's a fellow professor at London Business School, um, came up through the organizational behavior route, uh, interested, if you like, in the human side of the enterprise. My work was mainly on the marketing uh, and competitive strategy side of the school. So we joined forces to write this book. Oh, excellent. Okay. And, and one of the things that you say right out of the gate in the book is that you believe that most enterprises today are insufficiently entrepreneurial. Was that kind of the reason you wrote the book? Yes. I was, I was very influenced by a colleague uh, at the end of his career, professor of business strategy, trained at Harvard and MIT, who said to me, Jules, if there's one adjective that describes senior management in Western industrial organizations, that adjective would be indecisive. And I've experienced the same thing. I think that, I think that in business today, we're excessively risk averse. There is almost a, a pathological fear of making even the smallest mistake. And I've always thought that business should be entrepreneurial and risk-taking. And there is, if you like, an optimal rate and size of mistake-making that should be, if you like, embraced. It's through the making of mistakes uh, that we learn, uh, that we discover uh, truths around which we can then build a competitive business model. And I guess it's it was that insight, the, the notion that we're insufficiently entrepreneurial, and not just in Europe, but also, I suspect, in North America as well, and particularly in large corporations, which is the kind of world that I move in. 
Right, right. Because you, you actually label market-based competition is a discovery process. And, and what I found really interesting is you, you put a lot of emphasis on asymmetric knowledge, which is the object of, of the business. And, and, and that's kind of actually your definition of, of uncommon sense, right? That's that constant quest for knowing what your competition doesn't know. Yes, beautifully put, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> I've been kind You've of... really uh, read the book very carefully and skillfully. <laughs> well, I've been marinating in your <laughs> in the book, so <laughs> prep for this show. Yeah. Uh, but w- w- the other thing I have to ask you before we go to Ed, and I'll let him jump in here too because he's got a lot of questions for you, but you're obviously heavily influenced by the Austrian School of Economics. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely, yes. Particularly Hayek, uh, a very brilliant thinker, much underrated. I I totally agree. I I even think Mises, to some extent, figured a lot of things out. (laughs) Very, very, very much so. I know Mises worked rather less well, but yes, a wonderful thinker. Very little mathematics, but wonderful wisdom. Yeah, they actually shun, Mises actually shunned it, thought it was completely ridiculous. Yes. And yes. A, a couple of years ago, I made my way through his book, Human Action, which is kind of a book about everything. I mean, it's just amazing, but it, it really is a page turner. I think yes. as you get older, you, you can appreciate it more. But uh, Jules, I'm going to turn this over to Ed and I'll let him chime in here as well. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Yeah, great. Thanks, Ron. And, and and again, thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate that. We we had uh, Dr. Thomas Sowell on a couple of weeks ago, and you know he of course wrote his book Basic Economics and and mentioned to us that he did it as as a to to just to see if he could write a book without math or graphs about economics. So very similar the thought process behind that. But yes. I wanted to just pick up on the theme of, of, of risk aversion in, in large companies and just, just to ask you, why do you think that is? I mean, we, one person has postulated that it's because as a species, we tend to be risk averse because it saved our lives back in the, the days of being hunter-gatherers. But do, do you think it's just that? Do you think it's just a psychological barrier or do you think it's something that's more endemic in the institution? Gosh, what a good question. I think genetically – uh, we are predisposed to being very wary of anything that looks like a threat for obvious evolutionary reasons. Uh, Daniel Kahneman called it loss aversion, didn't it? I like the phrase very much, we dream vaguely, but we dread precisely. And we exaggerate uh, dangers more than we welcome, if you like, the upside, delights, uh, surprises that are good. And one can see why genetically we are fearful of mistake. They, you know, once upon a time they were, they were mortal. But in organizational life today, there, I think there are other factors as well. Um, hierarchy does not lend itself um, to skillful mistake making and experimentation. I mean, it is quite interesting that businesses and indeed governments do not like experimenting very much because it suggests that we're wasting money on ideas uh, that we're not sure about. Uh, But almost all the political uh, assumptions or the assumptions underlying modern uh, government policies, whether in the States or in Europe, 
are based upon a set of assumptions about human nature. And many of these assumptions, of course, are flawed. We are fallible creatures. It's surprising, isn't it, that we don't, if you like, experiment more conscientiously with our policies because they are very, very important that we get them right, for example. So that that pathological fear of making even small mistakes is, is holding back our civilization hugely. If you think of you know, America in the early days, uh, these were individuals who were adventurers, uh, who, uh, who led extraordinary lives of experimentation and, and learned a lot, and from whom we learned a lot. What is it about the modern world where we become petrified even of our own shadows? Yes, and it's almost really what's what's to fear in most modern businesses. I'm not not talking about pharmaceuticals or or medical, but you know, in in say the business that I'm in, software. You know, nobody really dies <laughs> if there's a mistake right. made. <laughs> yes. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> <laughs> let's let's give it a shot. Let's see. Yeah. And 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 yeah. of course, the the next thing that I think we would like to to get into is some of your thoughts on on strategy and and data inside organizations but we're coming up here against a break so what i prefer to do is just maybe just do that and we'll we'll pick up on this after after our break so we we welcome dr dr goddard today and we are looking forward to the continuing the conversation Uh, but in the meantime if you want to get a hold of us here at the soul of enterprise the best thing to do is to send an email to tsoe at verisage.com alternatively if you like you can uh, get us on Twitter, which is to do hashtag AskTSOE, and we do monitor that during the show. So we'll look forward to seeing if any of you have any comments for us or Dr. Goddard as we move along. And before we bring Dr. Goddard back, we're going to have this word from our sponsor, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You've experienced it. Marketing and selling has changed dramatically in the last few years. The search engine has completely altered the way customers buy. Your clients are now driving the process their way. At Leading Results, we know how to work with this. We don't just jump in and start doing. Together, we plan your marketing strategy. Install a website that gets results and create lead generation programs that drive sales. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more and to schedule a 30-minute conversation with us. It's a sad fact that fraud is rampant in today's business environment. The headlines scream about once prestigious organizations falling victim to or crumbling due to the consequences of fraud. How do you keep fraud from affecting you and your business? Tune in to Fraud Talk with host Chris Marquet. Chris has over 30 years of fraud investigation experience, business intelligence, and is a renowned security consultant. Chris and his guests will inform you and help keep you from being the next statistic of fraud. Tune in Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Kless. To find out more about our show, visit Verisage.com. You may also tweet us at Verisage. That's V-E-R-A-S-A-G-E. 
Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. We're talking with Jules Goddard today, the author of the 2012 book, Uncommon Sense, Common Nonsense. Uh, Ron mentioned that it was his favorite book of, of 2014. I've had the good fortune to, to read it in 2015, so I can say that it's my favorite book of this year that I've read. <laughs> so I, I have the, uh, the, the last mover advantage, I guess, in that particular case. Um, well, one of the things that I, your opinion, Ed. Yes. <laughs> so one of the things I want to to pick up on is is you you write an awful lot about strategy, and I, I'm I'm not an MBA. I've, I've, I've mostly school of hard hard knocks, and and been a somewhat serial serial entrepreneur uh, my life in my life as well. But yeah. one discovery that I sort of made, and I know that I'm not the first to discover this, was what I call the MOASC, or the mother of all strategic questions. Uh, yeah. for, for, for a long time, I, I uh, participated in strategy sessions, both in small and medium-sized businesses. And inevitably, the first question that is asked is, okay, how much revenue are we going to produce in X period of time, whatever X is? And then what I found is the rest of the conversation, and whether this is balanced scorecard or any of the other methodologies that are used, the rest of the conversation then focuses internally on how it is that we are going to do that, right? And what I came to was that maybe the right first question to ask is how much value are we going to create for our customers in our in this strategic period of time, whatever that is, and how are we going to do that? And what I found is the conversation then really flipped and became at least a little bit more about the external rather than the internal. So it was about this value creation going forward. And it led me, led me to this conclusion too, that and I think you have say this in a slightly different manner, that the moment an organization begins to focus internally more on itself, on its efficiency, than it's on its external effectiveness, is the day that you should sell its stock. <laughs> it's a wonderful observation. I couldn't agree more. I don't know whether you saw the article uh, in April last year in Harvard Business Review called Three Rules of Business. Did you come across that? Uh, it I was did not. A very interesting. It was a very interesting article. They looked at, it was two accountants at Deloitte's, studied 25,000 U.S. businesses over 45 years and distilled them down into 74 miracle workers that had created huge shareholder value, not just for their own shareholders, but particularly for the shareholders of their clients or the value for their consumers, if you like. And they came up with three rules of success. The first rule was better before cheaper. In other words, compete on, on differentiators other than price. The second rule was revenue before cost. Uh, devote your time to understanding how to increase revenue. In other words, solving problems for uh, participants in markets rather than reducing costs. And the third, the third rule, which I think is also very interesting, is that in thinking about increasing revenue, do it by increasing prices rather than increasing volumes. And I think those three rules make exactly the point you've made. This is the largest empirical study of business performance ever conducted. And here they are coming up with exactly your point that don't concentrate on efficiency, concentrate on solving problems for customers and concentrate, therefore, on value for customers and draw up your accounts around the, the value you're creating for your customers and their shareholders rather than just for your own shareholders, which, if you like, makes it more externally focused. 
And is that again getting back to this? I'm, I'm more concerned with the, with the the why here of this. Do you think that that's because of the institutional investors and that everybody on the street and in the city uh, wants to look at this short term twelve month view versus a real strategic you know twenty four thirty six even five year view? Possibly the short term the thesis has been tested by many by many, hasn't it? I mean the jury is out. Uh, there are so many shareholders who are in for the long term. Firms perhaps should be as selective of their shareholders as they are for the customers, or perhaps there should be a class of shareholder who get preferential uh, treatment if they hold their shares for, let's say, three years or longer, and that the short-termist shareholders pay a penalty for not giving the management team the chance to prove their mettle. I, I'm... I'm pretty confident that within the next 20 years there will be a major legal attack on the notion of the joint stock corporation and it will be redefined to give it, if you like, intrinsically more long-term, more outwardly focused values. And certainly in America and Western Europe, uh, if managers were more aligned to a a longer-term shareholder view, we would create far, far more wealth in our businesses. Yeah, Jules, this is Ron again. And just to pick up on that short-termism point, I mean, the, the, one of my favorite documents was the Google uh, founder's IPO letter where they yeah. basically said, we're in this for the long run. We're going to try lots of ideas, lots of experiments that are not going to pay off. And if that freaks you out, don't buy our stock. Absolutely. Brilliant. And, yes. Yeah, and as far as I can tell, they've kind of lived up to 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 their their creed there, and I really yeah. admire them for that. Yeah, I, 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 you know, this whole topic you've brought up, and Ed brought up uh, efficiency versus effectiveness, and this is something that uh, our group, uh, which is Verisage Institute, the think tank I founded, we we affectionately call this the effing debate because <laughs> <laughs> because this is this is so counterintuitive i think to most business people but you know peter drucker and stephen covey and a whole bunch of other thinkers including yourself have pointed out that businesses aren't paid to be efficient they're paid to be effective and i just I, i just think about you know if walt disney had listened to efficiency experts or lean six sigma black belt you know ninja turtles uh he would have made snow white and the four dwarfs (laughs) <laughs> because you know that would have been a lot more efficient. And it would, yes. In my fact, we favorite could dispense with the dwarves altogether, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, think of the you know you, you would have to draw less hand animated cells and all that sure, type of yeah. thing. But Absolutely. our favorite line in your book, which we pounded out on social media after I read it, is and 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 Rory quoted it too. And and I I do think it, it's my favorite line from your book. You say strategy is the rare and precious skill of staying one step ahead of the need to be efficient. And I think I understand the spirit of what you say, but can you elaborate on that for our listeners? Because I think that's a really counterintuitive point, Jules. Yes, I, I guess so. I think, in a sense, when the market seems to be urging us to be efficient, what it's really saying to us is that they cannot see any difference 
between ourselves and our competitors. We've completely commoditized our business, and therefore all they have to go on is price. And the only way in which we can reduce our price and regain our our competitive advantage is, is to cut our costs. And of course, by definition, in any industry, only one firm can be the low price, low cost competitor. And what the Deloitte team showed is that of their 74 miracle workers, none of them, none of them could be showed, shown to be the cost leader in their industry. It's interesting that I came across a finding recently that boards of companies are spending nine times longer spending and counting cash flow than to actually wondering where it comes from and how it could be increased. And of course, our accounts themselves have... A, a tremendous detail in terms of the cost. The cost lines are break and broken down into many, many uh, lines of different varieties of cost. But our revenue line, where the value that we create for the world is coming from, is a single line. And I think we should invert those priorities, unpack the revenue line, and understand better why those who buy from us are buying from us and why those who are leaving us are leaving us and worry slightly less about the cost. Of course, we have to have some level of efficiency, but economies of scale long ago ceased to be the explanation of success in business. And as you say, the businesses that we admire, the businesses that we have an emotional relationship with, are all businesses that are providing something unique, distinctive, valuable, emotionally engaging, and that comes from the courage of out-investing their competitors and not uh, cutting costs relative to their competitors, I would suggest. Right. You know, the customer really doesn't care about your internal efficiency. They care about the outcome. It's kind of, you know, one of my favorite Peter Drucker lines is, you know, the customers care about the baby, not the labor pains. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yes. Wasn't he brilliant? (laughs) How we missed him. You, you quoted a statistic also in your book that I found fascinating. You say that you, in Europe, companies spend an average of 25,000 person days on planning and performance measurement per $1 billion of turnover. Yes. That's an amazing number. And, and, it, and, and KPMG take, claims that the uh, process takes up about 20 or 30% of managers and controllers' times. Uh, it's just like you say, this focus on efficiency, this relentless, you know, tedious quest is actually driving out flexibility, innovation, creativity, all these other things that really are what create wealth. I think Freud, you know, I think Freud would have called, would call it a, a kind of displacement activity. It, it's much tougher doing the creative work of working out how we could be more useful others in the world. It's much easier to stay in the plant and look at materials and look at labor and look at our cost base and think about how to reduce it. It's so much easier. And, and it is a kind, it's a form of neurosis to be so focused on cost or the budget. There are some Swiss firms uh, that are having some success in entirely doing away with the budgeting exercise. Uh, because if you think about it, budgeting is a kind of rain dancing, isn't it? It's sort of an, on the assumption that we have sort of clairvoyance and that we can, we, we can predict how the world will unfold over the next 12 months. We can't. 
Uh, we will always be taken by surprise. And therefore, why waste all that good intellectual power, try to second-guess the future, when we're not paid to provide accurate predictions. We're paid to provide goods and services that people are delighted to buy. But if you like, budgeting is another kind of displacement activity, isn't it? No, that's a, that's a phenomenal point. And another point that you make uh, is, uh, is about the pharmaceutical industry. And you claim or say that the pharmaceutical industry, industry, possibly more than others, understands the importance of inefficiency to innovation. I mean, it, 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 it's so true that efficiency is the antithesis to innovation, isn't it? I think so. I think so. I mean, I think what the Deloitte team showed is that it is the antithesis. You, it's, it, so to speak, it's, it's, if you emphasize efficiency, all you're doing is removing your talent from the opportunity to create real long-lasting value. I think that efficiency shows up by the war. The desire for efficiency shows up in a lot of modern, so-called modern management methods that are different words for the same thing. Um, in the book, I talk about the perils of emulating best practice and using phrases like operational excellence uh, or performance targets or financial incentives or professional standards or lean thinking. These are fine up to a point, but we're not paid to make happen what's going to happen anywhere in the world. We're paid to make a difference, aren't we? To have a, a personal impact. And the way in which business creates impact is through the, the, you know, the transactional value of the products and services that we're creating. And yet if you look at how managers spend their time, a precious small amount of that is on the discovery of, of new forms of making these products and services more valuable and desirable and exciting. Right. Great point. Well, Jules, we need to take a break. But when we come back, I'm going to ask you your opinion on what's more important. It's kind of a debate that we have going on, maybe okay. even between Ed and me. But uh, w whether or not ideas or their execution are more important. And folks, oh. we'll get uh, we'll get Jules answer on that when we come back. But first, um, Please contact Ed or myself at TSOE at VerisAge.com, and you can find our show notes, which we will post up after our, our interview with Jules, and we'll, we'll link to his books and other interesting things about him at TSOE, I mean, I'm sorry, at VerisAge.com slash TSOE, and follow us live on Twitter at hashtag AskTSOE, and now we want to hear from our sponsor, Azamba. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if you could close more business with less effort and do it faster? What could your people accomplish if they had their own personal assistant keeping track of meetings and reminding them of follow-ups? What would it mean to have a perfect view of what your team and your prospects and your customers are doing? What if you could run your business from anywhere? You can have it all. Visit www.azamba.com forward slash soul today to find out how. That's azamba, A-Z-A-M-B-A dot com forward slash soul. 
Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with dr jules goddard and he's the author of uncommon sense common nonsense and folks literally this is the best business book i read last year highly recommend it i know ed does as well and jules i'd love to ask you there's a big debate um you know you read a lot of business books that say it's all about execution no ideas they're a dime a dozen they're everywhere it's really the yep. execution that matters what is more valuable the ideas or the execution that's a bit like asking the question uh, to a scientist, uh, which is more important, the hypothesis or the test. Uh, of course, we need both, don't we? But unless one has an idea that's worth executing, no amount of skillful execution will make up for, if you like, an impoverished idea, just as no amount of testing in science will make up for, if you like, unimaginative or false hypotheses, but the starting point, I think, has to be raising the quality of our ideas. And that means, I think, democratizing our organizations. I was hugely taken by James Surowiecki's book on, on the wisdom of the crowd, the fact that creativity is not a hierarchical concept. And very often, it's those who are fresh out of university who have joined us uh, in an enterprise who come up uh, with uh, the brilliant insight, uh, the surprising thought. And I do think that, if you like, that, that debate between ideas and execution, in terms of ideas, we need to employ the creative talent of the entire enterprise, but we then need very, very disciplined uh, execution or experimentation to sort, if you like, the wheat from the chaff and to find perhaps the one in ten ideas or hypotheses or insights that really are valuable and on which we can continue to build build our business. I, I hope that's a, um, an answer that hasn't chickened out entirely from <laughs> the of what you were asking. No, no, not at all. That's a, that's a very good answer. In fact, it, it, it's aligned with my thinking. I mean, uh, two economists had a big impact on my ideas on this is Thomas Sowell and Paul Romer. Uh, and they basically say if you look at countries that come up with more ideas rather than just merely executing them, 
you'll find higher standards of living. And I guess it kind of comes back to the idea, I'd rather live in the country that, that comes up with the idea of the iPhone rather than the com- com- country that merely assembles it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a huge question for Europe at the moment. We don't seem to be producing uh, young enterprises uh, based on highly entrepreneurial ideas at anything like the pace of the states. I think our educational system is partly responsible for this success because you pay immense attention to the individualistic imagination, if I can call it that. Your kids get a work experience um, as youngsters. Um, Business is not a dirty word. Business is seen as an imaginative activity a noble activity. And of course, if if business is presented like that, if business is presented as a, a place that welcomes imaginative ideas, we shouldn't be too, too surprised that we get Silicon Valley and the United States and not in, um, you know, the outskirts of London. Yes, uh, Ed again here. And I, I wish that were the case of what, I, what I'm seeing. I think that that's unfortunately on the, on the decline here in the, yeah. in the United States as well. And, and yeah. that, and quite frankly, scares me. I mean, and I, I think it, it starts with a, the faulty premise of business as a zero-sum game. I mean, yeah. uh, the, the, the famous scene in, in the movie Wall Street where uh, Gordon Gecko says, hey, you know, it is. He says it's a zero-sum game. Wealth isn't created or destroyed, merely transferred from one perception to the other. Yes. And, yes. and of course, what, what Oliver Stone, who also wrote this, the script to that movie, is missing is that, no, 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 it's, a, it's actually in the transference where wealth is created. <laughs> yes. Right? Right. Yeah, and absolutely. and that's you know a big big problem. But uh, what what I wanted to to, to just experiment and ask you a, a little bit about is this idea of uh, you know what happens when businesses become uh, so stagnant that that what they th- that they believe that the best thing for them to do is to sue everyone who's like them. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and uh, Ron and I, when we were prepping, you know, we, we, we for the show, we, we came across you know, the idea that this is this is actually what the Wright brothers did <laughs> yeah. when 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 they started their their airplane manufacturing company. They they came to a point where the, their best strategy was just to sue everyone else who tried to make a plane. Yes, right. How interesting. And, and 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 how is it that that that's manifesting itself today? You know, people like patenting the the one click for 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 ordering on the yes, internet, Amazon, yes, and uh, you know things of that nature. So do you think do you think there's a danger in this idea of patents and 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 patent trolls and and that and and really locking down those things? I'm undecided in a way. I mean, I I was always it was only when I was young I was a huge supporter of copyright and intellectual property, but it's interesting, with my book, I couldn't care less about intellectual property. If people photocopy it and distribute it, that should be a delight. That's what readers, what's, what writers are trying to encourage is, is the dissemination uh, of ideas. It would be very interesting to, to perhaps have an experiment of completely dismantling the intellectual property laws and just seeing whether um, uh, innovation would pick up or slow down. There's, for example, in music now, it's very difficult to... Uh, in the music industry, it's very difficult to copyright um, composition. And yet there's no sense in which the quality of, of songs and jazz and music coming out of 
the States or Europe is slowing down at all. If anything, it's more exciting, more, more enthusiastic. So perhaps we should, this is one of those areas where we could do some very interesting large-scale experimentation. You could imagine each U.S. state might approach IP laws in a different way, rather in the way that you are in decriminalizing drugs and seeing what happens. Because it could be that by being overly protective of uh, authors' rights uh, and scientists' rights, uh, we're slowing down advance. And I think we are. It's it's a difficult thing, and I think I think there's one area where I think I've I've uh, been been able to persuade Ron a, a little bit. I, I would like to see us do away with a lot of those those things. Uh, his his one area where he where he thinks we should keep it is is with uh, drugs, which yeah. <laughs> I sort of understand. <laughs> but yes, I think that's probably right. Although I was alarmed earlier this week to see that drug companies spend five times more selling drugs with these huge sales forces than researching them. So perhaps we should be slightly suspicious of the notion that pharma companies, big pharma, needs to be as profitable as it is to support their research if what we find is so much more of their money is going on their huge sales forces than on their R&D labs. And... I definitely agree. I want to, to to set something up maybe for the last few minutes of this segment and then into the next. Uh, and I, I guess the best way to describe it is from your book. You really talk about this idea of the first mover advantage. And both Ron and I, when we were reading it, this is the the one, I think, uh, section of the book where we were like, well, I'm not sure I d- agree with that. Not sure I agree yeah. with that until we read your definition of it. <laughs> and oh, yeah. you almost see, seem, to, seem to say that it's it's not just first mover. It's a it's really the democratization first mover, right? Who, who democratizes it first? Uh, yes. Yes, the fast follower thesis, it's the one who scales up first that seizes the advantage. Amazon was not the first online seller of books, but Amazon was certainly the first to find a way of expanding their offer uh, faster than anybody else. Uh, I'm sure there were, I don't know whether the Wrights brothers, the Wright brothers ever benefited from the invention of the airplane, but certainly firms like Douglas um, and others were the ones that, uh, if you like, effectively proved the, the fast follower thesis that they were the ones um, who benefited most from the discoveries and inventions of others. Yes, I, I think so. And perhaps we'll pick up on that at that theme after the next break. But right now, we just want to let you know that if you want to get a hold of us, you can reach us at TSOE at Verisage.com. Please also use hashtag TSOE. Uh, those of you out on the internet and just notice that we have a great hashtag for uh, from from Don so thanks for following us Don and we will be back after this word from my company Sage Software Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue, being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit BelieveInYourNumbers.com today. 
What do business and sports have in common? Both are based on competition, and the goal of each is the same, to win. If you're in business, you need an edge over your competitors. You need to innovate and improve. You need to make adjustments to stay ahead of your competition. Tune in to The Business Locker Room with Kelly Riggs. Get the playbook and the coaching you need to improve your business performance. The Business Locker Room airs live every Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit verisage.com you may also tweet us at verisage that's v-e-r-a-s-a-g-e now back to the soul of enterprise welcome back everybody we're here with dr jules goddard and the author of uncommon sense common nonsense again a book we highly recommend and jules i have to ask you being a recovering cpa although mine stands for couldn't pass it again um, (laughs) you you take on the accounting profession and and you write that over the past decade the accounting profession has completely lost any sense of what accounts are for accounts do not reflect reality and I just wanted to get your thought on that because I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think accounting is becoming a deteriorating paradigm. Uh, in other words, the more complex it gets, the less it explains. Well put, yes. I mean, one of the problems is it's been professionalized to the point where there are standards of accounting, which effectively has commoditized it so that everyone does their accounting in the same way. So it ceases to become a source of competitive advantage. It may, if it's skillfully done, describe competitive advantage, measure it, but it's not itself a source of advantage. But out of thought, the things we choose to measure, um, the way in which we measure performance is part and parcel of competitive strategy. Uh, Measuring things differently will lead to different outcomes, different priorities, uh, different strategies. If we measure everything in the same way, we're denying ourselves one of the weapons of differentiation. And therefore, I think the challenge to a good accountant is to say, how can you measure differently in a way that would enhance our competitive advantage? That's the challenge for accountants, I think. That, that's a fantastic point, because I think one of the problems with the accounting profession is because it is a monopoly, there's been no innovation in it. These guys have yes. a pretty secure source of evergreen revenue, and, yes. and they don't have to innovate. And I, I just see that as, as, as the big problem. You know? well, plus, when they screw up, Ron, then we pass laws in the United States like Sarbanes-Oxley that gives them like $14 billion more billion in revenue. <laughs> it's a great gig. I think that, that, that is an un-American activity, Sarbanes-Oxley. <laughs> that, that is a truly, truly disastrous policy, which incidentally the Europeans are imitating. But what happened to America to pass such a nonsensical law? It's a great question. We asked ourselves that at the time. I thought, I, I still believe it's unconstitutional, the peekaboo yeah. that it established. But, uh, yeah, I, accounting's got all sorts of issues. But even when I practiced it, Jules, I always felt that, and I, and, and I had, my customers would tell me this. They'd say things like, Ron, to use your audit report that you give me once a year to run my business is like timing my cookies with my smoke alarm. 
<laughs> you know, it's like accountants are just, they're historians with bad memories and they don't, they haven't figured it out yet. But uh, Jules, before, because we've got few precious remaining minutes with you and I, and I hope you come back, but um, I, I'd love to ask you also in your book, because this is also something that Peter Drucker, who is another mentor of mine, taught me from his writing. He thought that you learn more from success than failure. And I'm talking mm. more on a personal level, not so much at a business level, but just on a personal level. What's your take on that? Do you think we learn more from success or failure? Um, I think probably Peter Drucker was right. Uh, he was going against uh, majority opinion, I think, here. I think what success gives you uh, is the confidence to keep making enough mistakes to relish the further successes you have, because I think confidence is in hugely short supply in the world at the moment. I was very interested in, a, I met, uh, I do a lot of teaching for INSEAD in uh, Fontainebleau outside Paris, mm. and I met a wonderful uh, a political theorist called uh, Dominique Moisy the other day, and he's written a book called The Geopolitics of Emotion. And he says it's emotion that makes the world go round. We understand people and we understand nations when we understand the, the emotion that drives them. And he said there are three parts of the world that are shaking things up. There's America, driven by fear, East Asia, driven by hope, and the Middle East, driven by humiliation. And I think <laughs> the events in Paris this week were a lovely illustration of what happens to humiliated youth, youth who've lost, if you like, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose, and feel, if you like, alienated. And I think that confidence needs to be returned quite quickly to the West. Kenneth Clark, the great art historian, defines civilization in one word, a sense of self-confidence. And when we're confident, we do so, many, so much more extraordinary things with our lives. And when we lose confidence, it's very, very difficult to keep learning, to keep trying, to, to, to bring the same level of initiative and insight uh, into our working lives. So I agree, I, I agree with you, I, and I agree with Drucker. It's nice to agree with Drucker because he <laughs> put management theory on the map. You know, we learn from our, we learn from our successes. And I think the way you put it about that, that builds our confidence to take more risks is a really important point. I hadn't thought about it in, the, in those specific terms, but I think that's a really good part of it. This isn't to say, of course, that you can't learn from failure. And and I know you're a fan of Russell Ackoff because you, you quote him a few yeah. times in your book. And I, I yes. learned about him for the last uh, a couple of years ago. I started reading his works and I just absolutely thoroughly enjoy it. But one more point I'd like to make, and I'll turn this over to Ed, but you talk about inequality, and you say, much to the consternation of egalitarians, a rather small number of people in the world make all the difference. Yeah. And I just wanted to ask you, have, have you ever run across Charles Murray's book, Human Accomplishment? Yes. Yes. Yeah, he documents 4,002 people from 800 B.C. to 1950 who basically yes. were standing on the shoulders of for practically yes. everything. Aren't we lucky to have them? <laughs> yeah. Aren't we lucky good, good to have a, dispro yes, a disproportionate number of them in our part of the world? <laughs> my, my favorite line, Jules, is a German proverb that says, if you want equality, visit a cemetery. <laughs> Quite. Enough said. No, I think... Charles Murray's greatest book is the one on um, happiness, um, in pursuit of happiness. 
Yes, yes. Uh, wonderful one. There are very, very few books of the last 50 years that beat Charles Murray's book on, on happiness. Absolutely wonderful. And he wrote one called How to Be a Libertarian. Correct. Uh, yep. I'm staring at it on my shelf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one <laughs> one of my favorites. I'm, I'm a staunch libertarian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the the last thing that I wanted to ask you about it's a little bit off topic, but Ron and I did a show previously on abolishing the performance appraisal because yeah. we think that that like as you mentioned, but budgeting is is this uh, this rain dance. We we see the performance appraisal as as kabuki theater and. <laughs> Uh, and and to that end, I made I made an observation during that show that I want to share with you and just get your your reaction to as we yes. close. And that is, uh, in in North Korea, Kim Jong Il came up with these things called criticism sessions, where every 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 week you have to stand before your neighbors and friends and they criticize you for the things that you've done. I said in in modern American business or Western business, we've we've morphed that into what we call the three hundred and sixty degree review. Yes. And we, we just don't see this as very healthy. <laughs> no, it isn't. No, it isn't. I think um, we live in very judgmental times. Um, there are more commentators than there are creators. There are more people passing judgment uh, than those who are worthy of being judged. I think judgment has a place when it's self-judgment. I think it's very important in life uh, to feel free and to, indeed to be obliged to think of our own lives, uh, to think of how, uh, by small adjustments, uh, we could lead better lives, more virtuous lives, more useful lives. But I don't think it's very helpful to bring that level of judgment to others. We need to lead our own lives and not try to lead the lives of others. And I think it's part of our libertarian, shared libertarian philosophy, by the way. We want a variety of lives being lived according to the lights of those individuals and where they see uh, the way in which they feel they could be most useful to others. And when we have an excessively judgmental society, what we do is to cramp people's style. We take away their confidence and their self-belief. And this is a, a small but important crime. Amen. <laughs> and just, just, just quickly before we wrap up, are, are you working on a new book? Yes, I'm working on a book uh, in the area of behavioral economics on how uh, recent advances in our understanding of human nature uh, are changing the way in which I think we should be designing the workplace. Wow. All right. Well, I can't wait now to read that. And, and please, we would love to have you back on when, when that comes out. It's very kind of you both. Thank you. I'd love to come on again. All right. Thank you so much, Jules. And thank you to your listeners. All right. Well, Ed, uh, what do we have on store for next week? Well, next week's show, we are going to talk about the concept of what is a commodity and why neither of us think that there is such thing as a commodity. So we'll just we'll just put that on as a, as a teaser. And we'd love to have your questions. So please uh, send them to us at TSOE at Verisage.com. And, but I guess in the meantime, we'll see you in 167 hours.
This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, supporting small and medium-sized businesses by creating greater freedom for them to succeed. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at verisage.com slash TSOE for more information. We'll post our show notes up with Dr. Jules Goddard and link to his book, which again, folks, we highly recommend. And join us on next week's show and we'll dispel another myth, which is there's no such thing as a commodity. Thank you very much and we'll see you next week. Yeah.